0: CHAPTER 6 VIRTUOUS FREEDOM 2 FREEDOM 4 It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Galatians Chapter 5, verse 1 As discussed in the last chapter, if our foundational slavery is the compulsion of the flesh, then our foundational liberation must be freedom from this compulsion and its consequences. We need liberation from the control of our compulsions and pardon for the guilt of having obeyed them. This would be incomplete, however, without a new pattern to shape our lives. We are free from a specific slavery and free for a specific way of life. So what is that life, and how does it become reality for us? Most Christians know that in Christ we are justified, pardoned from guilt, counted righteous and accepted by God, they know that in Christ we are also promised that the Holy Spirit will dwell in us, so we are not alone. In many churches today, we are attentive to the reality of our justification, but we neglect the other half of our salvation, which we call sanctification. God's sanctification of us produces in us the virtues that direct what we are meant to do with our freedom. When we experience the freedom of Christ directed by true virtue, we start to look like Christ, the perfectly free and virtuous one. This is why virtuous freedom is a critical indicator of substance. Here is the point we speed past. Growth is slow in our eyes, painfully slow. We are the slowest maturing creature on earth, but the one with the most potential. Virtue and faith grow over decades god is growing shoots to be planted in eternity he is not in a rush like we are virtue and freedom are worked out over a lifetime with fear and trembling it may be discouraging to know that you won't be done growing soon but you will be amazed at what change you will see in a year or five years as you grow your vision will also grow and you'll be able to see your transformation and appreciate its beauty along with the good it does to others Not only will you learn to see His spiritual life blossoming in you, but you'll learn to see it in others. You'll begin to see it everywhere. The Liberating Power of Gospel Convictions The alternative to coercion and compulsion is faith directed by gospel conviction. God created us in His own image so that we would live in a way that expresses Him and His dominion over creation through us. He created us to be embedded in His creation while thinking and acting like Him. That has always been our purpose, but it is not normally the prevailing preference of our hearts. That unity between our created purpose and our hearts' preferences is part of what was broken by sin. The freedom from which Christ has set us free includes those two being put back together. The proper order of things is for something to depend on and serve that which is greater than it. We were meant to depend on and serve only what is greater than us, our Creator God, in whose image we were made. By putting our faith in Christ, we depend on the Creator and Savior of creation rather than on our fellow creatures. We set our hearts, minds, and wills on His character and love it for all its loveliness— Faith in Christ, then, forms our sense of what is good through the mind of Christ, and reforms our character through virtue by these right, Christ-centered convictions. These convictions form our character and recalibrate our conscience. Once faith has nourished Christ-like virtue in our character, our conscience will direct our freedom with faithfulness, godliness, and justice. We will increasingly experience the stabilizing maturity of virtuous freedom we will live less and less in the compulsion of the flesh. Rather, more and more our prevailing preference of heart will be motivated by Christ-centered convictions. This is true freedom, and it is one of the great marks of spiritual substance. The Second Freedom It would have been great enough if Christ had come to set us free only from the compulsion of the flesh and coercion of our idols. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Jesus came to break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We all need that. But Jesus was not content with that. He wanted more freedom for us. In fact, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 isn't mainly about being free from sin and the flesh. The passage is being free from God's law. If you really understand this, it is an incredibly freeing and focusing realization. The Old Testament has a lot of laws in it, 613 by traditional count. These laws governed most of life, telling people how to behave in a myriad of life situations. God used them to restrain sin and teach people about His character. While the law was perfect, it was still just a set of laws. This means it had at least three problems. First, all laws are expressions of universal truths applied specifically to particular situations, times, and cultures. No set of laws for humans can be timeless, because it will always have a context. Laws are always partly universal and partly bound to a specific situation and time. For example, the law tells us what to do with oxen, but not cars second the law was a time bomb the bible says that with sinful humans laws simultaneously restrain sin and provoke it paul talks about this in romans 7 he says he wouldn't have known what coveting was without a command that said don't covet but once he heard that law his flesh seized the opportunity and filled his heart with covetous temptations and desires So it was like the law just gave his flesh ideas. So, while law constrains sin by forbidding it, it also provokes the flesh like gasoline on a fire. Without something that deals with the flesh, a law is just a time bomb, constraining sin until the pressure builds up to the point of exploding. To defuse the bomb, people will either let some pressure out by sinning and then apologizing for it, or they'll reject the law altogether, so they never feel the pressure. But if these were the only problems with the law that Jesus wanted to fix, why couldn't he keep a revised law and the gospel? If the flesh can be killed in Christ and overcome in the Spirit, then it should be possible for the law to constrain us without the flesh using it to influence us, right? Why couldn't Jesus have saved us from sins, delivered us from the flesh, and still preserve the law? In other words, couldn't he have made us into people who are free to obey the law because our flesh doesn't get in our way anymore? In fact, this was the biggest confusion in the early church. Most Jewish believers had incredible respect for the divinely given law, so they assumed God would keep it as the basis of life in Christ. But he didn't. This suggests that God's end goal is more than just people who obey the law. That's the law's third limitation. As good as it is, it can't produce anything more than law-abiding people. Galatians 5 says that Christ freed us so that we would actually be free from the law. That is why the next verse tells Christians not to submit to the covenant of circumcision, because doing so would indicate that they're seeking to be justified by obeying the law. For that to work, we would have to obey the whole law perfectly, to be under it. Galatians 5 verse 18 in order to be saved. To do so would be to return to a slavery from which we have already been freed. Jesus freed us from the law for two reasons. First, so we would not look to be made right with God by obeying the law. Moralism. Jesus as the Christ freely gives us forgiveness and righteousness through faith alone, the only justification we require. He fulfilled the requirements of the law perfectly for us and that perfect fulfillment is credited to us when we are united with him through faith. The Bible simply calls this being in Christ. We are made right with God through faith apart from the law. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 in a way that creates both gratitude and humility. Romans 3:27. This is the freedom of justification. The second reason christ freed us from the law is just as important it is the freedom of sanctification he freed us from the law in order to allow us to be maximally good paul reveals this in the following verses you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from christ you have fallen away from grace for through the spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5, verses 4-6 Faith in Christ is the means of righteous standing, justification. It is also the means of the righteousness, godliness, and holiness for which we hope. We are seeking a righteousness in practice through the Spirit. That is shown not by obeying the laws of the Torah, but by faith expressing itself through love. Law is good for what it can do, and the Torah was a perfect law for its purpose, but it cannot maximize good through changed people. Only the spirit and faith can do that. By law's very nature of imposing order to restrain evil, it also prevents good by limiting people's freedom. Zoning and building code laws make buildings safer and neighborhoods well-organized, but they make housing more expensive and put safer housing further out of the reach of the poor. Assault laws keep people from attacking you, but they protect people who deserve it from getting a good punch in the mouth. Corporate policies standardize practices throughout the company, ensuring quality and organization, but they also keep workers from exercising good judgment in important circumstances to please customers. Even good laws limit some goods. Laws can't help having this drawback. However, when virtuous people possess freedom, they are able to do good and exercise creativity where the law cannot. Sin, like a gas, has no substance of good in it. Law, like rock, is substantive but unadaptable. Only virtue, like a liquid, can fill every crack and crevice in life's opportunities for good without losing itself. It has both fluidity and gravity. It is the perfect companion to freedom. When Christ forms this virtue through faith within, we need no law without. We can be trusted with the freedom to be creators. Back to creation again. There's a very important connection here to the creation story. God never repented of the purpose for which he had made us, Salvation redeems creation and brings us back to our original purpose as God's stewards. God is taking us back to our beginning, and He's doing so to equip us for our eternal future. We've discussed this already. When we were created, we were made to be God's stewards of creation. There are examples of this all through the Bible. All of them point to the fact that we are all God's stewards in His creation. In the account of creation, we see... God blessed them, and He said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1 verse 28. God didn't give us creation. He gave us a job in His creation. That job is to rule over it by filling it, subduing it, and helping it to flourish. Genesis 1 tells about God creating and fashioning creation, then putting the rest of the work in the hands of humanity. We are called to do His work, to bear His image in His creation as His stewards. This was our work in a perfect creation. It is our work under the present curse, and it will be our work in the new heaven and the new earth. We own nothing but govern everything. We will never be gods, but we will always have God's work of creating and cultivating. FREE AND FAITHFUL STEWARDS There was an important difference between a slave and a steward in the culture in which the Bible was written. Both did the work of a servant. However, most slaves had no freedom to choose how to do their work. They had no authority, only a set of chores they had to do in a certain way. In contrast, a steward governed all the affairs of the house. While he acted as a servant, as in worked for the good of the house as master, a steward could have been a slave, a paid worker, or even a son in the household. Whatever his standing, a steward was free in his work, free to use his judgment to invest and govern the master's affairs as long as it was for the master's goals and according to his ethics. A faithful steward served only the authority above him, never the naggings of the household or his desires. The best stewards were the ones the master could trust the most. Virtuous stewards needed no laws from their master, and so were not limited by them. In exchange for maximum freedom, a virtuous steward could do the most good unhindered by unneeded restrictions. God's vision for us is not only to be free from our own fleshly compulsion and the coercion of our idols, but also from the constriction of the law. Virtuous freedom, grown in faith by the Spirit, is guided not by the constrictions of a law, but by the convictions of a redeemed conscience. These convictions flow from understanding the mind of Christ. They show us how to express faith in love. They help us to keep in step with the Spirit. They forge the habits and disciplines of spiritual substance. Once we know that we're stewards, and what a steward is supposed to do, does it matter what kind of stewards we are? Are we slaves, servants, or sons and daughters? We might easily be eternally happy as the slave or servant of such a king as God. It would certainly be an honor for us. King David once said he would have been content with an even lower position He'd have taken any servant's job. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in You. Psalm 84, verses 10 through 12. Yet, this is not the kind of steward God has made us to be. Jesus demonstrated that a son could be a perfect steward by showing us how he served the Father. He submitted to the Father in everything, even though he was his son. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that Jesus was greater than Moses, the greatest man in the Old Testament. Why? Was it because he was a greater prophet than Moses? A greater leader? He was, but that's not the reason we're given. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are His house. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1b-6a through 6a. Jesus was greater than Moses as a perfectly faithful steward who was also a son. Moses was appointed as the person in charge of all of God's wandering people, His whole house. The distinguishing mark of his life was that he was a faithful steward over that house. Jesus was an even more faithful steward over God's house, plus he was the maker and heir of the house. It is within this context that we hear Jesus tell his disciples that he no longer calls them servants, but friends. He says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. John chapter 15 verses 14 and 15. Jesus doesn't give up his authority as the steward of salvation and creation. We are still under his authority, but we also are his friends because he has revealed himself and his will to us. He has brought us into the inner circle of his purposes. He wants his stewards to be guided by his character and purposes not by a rigid and limiting set of rules. It is also within this context that we can understand again what it means God calls us His children, His sons and daughters. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Different people connect with this truth in different ways. Being a son or daughter has many implications, including acceptance, belonging, identity, assured rescue, as well as redemption, riches, and glory. When we understand ourselves as stewards who are sons and daughters, it should do something to our perspective of our life's work. We are not helpless children with no responsibility. We are steward-heirs of our Father's creation. We are part of the family business. The way we govern reflects on our Father, His creation, enterprise, and reputation. We are investing on His behalf, in His name, and according to His ethics. We are not slaves, restricted only to following commands. We are not servants, doing insignificant chores. He wants us to mature into faithful stewards who need no formal set of regulations, and as His heirs are no longer focused on winning the approval He has already given. He wants to free us to strive in grace, through the Spirit, toward the righteousness for which we hope by expressing our faith through love. He wants his children to be unleashed in virtuous freedom. He wants us to see that it is when we give ourselves to him fully that we become fully ourselves in the truest possible liberation until glory. It was, after all, for freedom that Christ set us free. Virtue is verdant. It is lush with life and has the capacity to sustain other things. God is a God of life, of healthy expansion. Rebellion against God never produces anything new or life-giving. Devils would never have connected sex with procreation. They wouldn't even have connected it with love. But God connected pleasure, love, companionship, and new life in the same uniting act. Virtue is the same. It unites many goods in one garden of deepening roots, spiraling shoots, opening flowers and branches bowing with fruit. We are freed from sin so we could live as people who are fully alive in Christ, which means living as virtuous people, compelled in every way by the truth of the gospel and the love we give and receive. And with that freedom, we are called to take our place as stewards in the house of our Father.